0: That drive for economy and efficiency in government operations never ceases, especially when operational budgets don't grow like entitlements or grants budgets. So it's up to leadership to foster a culture of ever better productivity. Most don't do such a great job, says who? My next guest, longtime federal leadership professor, coach, and general smart guy, Bob Tobias. Bob, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. And this idea of culture change so that we can do more with less, this seems to preoccupy federal managers, federal purported leaders a lot. And you've got some thoughts on that. I do, Tom.
1: Thanks. I'm hearing more and more agency leaders who are saying we're going to initiate a culture change to increase agency productivity. And they're saying that because it looks over the next few years, that budgets are not going to keep going up, they're going to flatten out and maybe even decline. But what these leaders don't say, but I think often believe, they say, well, I'm very productive. And if everybody else would change their behavior to be as productive as me, things would be great around here. And those of us in long-term relationships often think If our partner would change, everything would be great around here. And we find out quickly that blaming the other is never a path to effective problem solving. And the same is true, I believe, in the workplace. So if leaders are unwilling to change their behavior and model the behavior that they seek, I think organization change is extremely unlikely.
0: Well, culture is a hard thing to get at. You hear people in every conference and every panel discussion say, well, it's a matter of culture. You know, we have the technology, we have the this, we have the that. We need to change culture. And I'm not sure exactly what culture is. I guess it's the sum of people's expectations for behavior towards one another, towards how they work and so on. How can you change culture? What should a leader model, say, for the idea of getting more productivity, for example?
1: Well, the normal approach to increasing productivity is for a leader to hold an all-hands meeting, identify the uh, need for more productivity, create the burning platform, appoint a group of high-level officials to study the problem, and of course, they select a consultant who introduces them to steps they must follow to increase productivity. And then at another all-hands meeting, six months or eight months later, new goals are created. And there is little or no discussion about the behavior that would need to change to achieve those goals. So many leaders at that point think they've done their work, and I suggest that's where they need to start. And as you suggest, organizational culture means the sum total of the behavior everybody exhibits toward each other in the organization. And if the organization needs to change, I think it has to start at the top, not me as a leader saying, I'm perfect and all you change and we'll be great. And we also know, Tom, that as adults, we don't like to change our culture. And all we have to do is see the TV ads of the smokers sucking oxygen saying, don't be like me. And yet people continue to smoke, even though we see that horror on the TV. So we get comfortable with how we behave and we don't want to change.
0: We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a former federal union president and retired American university professor of federal executive leadership. Well, let's put this into the context of, say, the return to the office gambit that has been going on. And the administration, some members of Congress want more federal employees in their offices more of the time. Yet the leadership for the most part, the managerial class in federal agencies, they are going to the office. And there's this reluctance of maybe the rank and file because they feel they are productive being teleworkers. And so there you have modeling of the behavior that's wanted. I'm going to the office, yet people are pushing back. How do you address that one?
1: Well, I think that the rationale for asking people to come back to the office doesn't exist because agencies have shown over time, particularly during COVID, but post-COVID, that productivity remains level and or is increasing. So if I'm the leader and I'm at work and I say, you ought to come back to increase productivity, nonsense. Show me the numbers. So I think that's where modeling the behavior you seek without a convincing rationale is where the uh, rub is.
0: In other words, I could model the behavior of walking across hot coals, and expecting people to follow me there, but there's never a really good rationale for walking across hot coals. Show me the boots before I walk across the hot coals. No. <laughs> and getting back to the productivity question, I mean, you can measure that in a lot of ways. In you know contracting, for example, well, how many contracts did you do? But maybe there needs to be on the part of management a deeper look at really the metrics and what's important. Because often if you need more output, more metric changes in this area, maybe you could just abandon some of the stuff that has been done by habit for so many years. We do that because we do that. And people could buy into the new metric if some stuff was heaved overboard that's burdening them.
1: Well, that's true. So in the arena of productivity, really what's needed is behavior change in how people relate to each other, how inclusive they are how collaborative they are, how well they listen to each other. Now, those are all habits of a culture. And if the leader doesn't change her or his behavior to exhibit those kinds of behaviors, it won't happen. So if they don't say this is really the kind of behavior and behave collaboratively, no one is going to do the changed behavior work necessary to increase productivity.
0: Can you think of a time that you saw that work in a positive way?
1: Uh, yeah, many times I saw it work in a positive way when I was president of NTEU, particularly during the Clinton years when there was a lot of support for including employees as part of the problem-solving process. And it's occurred sporadically ever since. But never to the extent where it could really be energizing and having a dramatic impact on increases in productivity, because the people who do the work know what the problems are. And when you include them and they say, well, I have a stake in this process now because it's my idea that's being implemented. When that happens, Tom, productivity increases.
0: Bob Tobias is a former federal union president, as he said, and retired American University professor of federal executive leadership. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at slash federal drive. Take your federal drive with you on your journey. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General, Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me.
4: Jane, it's great to talk to you this morning.
3: Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and, and what was that?
4: I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra- trajectory in many ways, so that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed, and now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically 25 years i had compartmentalized a part of me and i had hidden things and i had not been my full self at work and i had not been my full self with my coworkers and the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of lgbtq champion in the department of defense as a senior leader what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders not having to hide who I was at work made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously.
3: It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army Headquarters-level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style?
4: I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit, or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first, is you f- you w- th- assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself, and in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected, because you were elevated a bit, and people noticed you more, because they knew you as the first. And so you you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility.
3: And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school, when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life?
4: Future Farmers of America... Well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well, they are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA.
3: It, it's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence, because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership
4: roles? I think so because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust. And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team.
3: Excellent. Excellent. Uh, What's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career?
4: When I started my career, of course, I certainly had some skills. I I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So, I would tell my younger self, feel a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative.
3: That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything uh, many different formally studied leadership styles <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I I, I I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs.
4: You definitely can. And the whole timeline I- is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in <laughs> or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions. I I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there.
3: I think it's fascinating. And and maybe what you're also saying is that Part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this that uh, you just mentioned. You're you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision.
4: Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because. As your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit. You've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy them, you know, they see the big pieces earlier that's because for probably 30 or 40 years they've been looking at all the little pieces and in some of this then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame.
1: Perfect.
3: What <clears throat> is there a figure either from your personal life or maybe in history that has been an inspiration that has inspired your leadership style?
4: It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision-maker or if I was the decision-maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up. "Is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it, meaning did you see it, did you touch it, did you read the same report? And and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions.
3: Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time.
4: It's great to talk to you. Thanks.
3: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast.
2: Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comsteader sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style.
5: and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career.
3: And you're doing it well. You're Thank uh, you. having known you now for seven or eight years um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, its uh,